Welcome to the Recovery Edge Podcast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. Joined by my co-host and wife, Kayla. Hello, friends. And today we are also joined by my good friend, Greg, from uh, that I met at the Happy Trudgers Group in Denver. How are you, Greg? I'm doing well. Thanks, Alfredo. What an honor it is to have you here with us today. Um, I've known you for like a couple of years before I even got really sober. So I imagine it's been almost eight years now, I bet, something like that. Um, and I've heard you share so many times throughout the years, especially like pre-COVID, but I don't think I've ever sat, I've never sat down and heard your entire story, you know, although, you know, we've hung out a little bit outside of the rooms and stuff, but this is going to be really special for me and probably a lot of other people to finally be able to hear your story in its entirety, however you want to tell it. So I'm excited. Yeah. Um, why don't we start off with... We'll just go with your sobriety date and your home group. Sounds good. Um, Well, again, my name is Greg. I'm an alcoholic. Um, My sobriety date is July 21st of 2008. So 7-21-2008. It's my second sobriety date, the realest of the sobriety dates. And my home group is the Happy Trudgers on Broadway and 18th in Denver. Uh, so many of my guests I meet at the at the Happy Trudgers group. And for me, I found that group just Googling it after an awful night of, like, I'm never going to do that again. How did you find that group? Well, let me, um, let me answer it by backing up just a little bit in time. Um, I had been drinking for a long time. When I, when I put it all back together, although I really never drank in high school, I was in a high school seminary studying to be a priest. So even beer, you know, I had one or two, but it was never anything that I really did. Um, in college, that changed, of course, to pot and other socially acceptable drugs. Um, and that's when I actually started drinking, but it was not a big deal for me. It was when I moved here in here to Denver in... Um, 1973 to start law school that um, I was living about a half a block away from Argonaut Liquors and uh, it was a great one-stop shopping experience and that's when I really started hammering it and from that point in time I drank for well over 30 years. Um, My wife uh, and kids saw the intensity of my problem before I was willing to admit it or even, you know, even identify it. Um, And so what happened was after starts and stops and going to going to uh, Harmony House for rehab, um, I started seeing a medical doctor here, a guy who works with addicts and alcoholics medically. And uh, he and his wife have their own program. She does the talk therapy and uh, this doctor, whose name is Ivor Garlic, G-A-R-L-I-C-K, if anyone listening is struggling and um, needs medical advice and treatment, he would be the guy that I refer a lot of people to. Uh, Dr. Garlic had tried me on antidepressants and other meds. Um, I blew through all of them. Could not stand the side effects of the of the antidepressants in general until he tried a very old drug, Wellbutrin. Um, which is the anti-smoking drug, right? It's kind of one of the basic antidepressants. And that 
sort of balanced my chemistry to the point that instead of sneering at ideas about you need to do more if you really want to get sober, because I relapsed constantly, um, he suggested that I go to an AA meeting. And I told him repeatedly for about a year, I'm not an AA guy. I'd never been to an AA meeting, of course. I had no idea what the program was. I'd never read the book. I knew nothing about it, but I knew that I just wasn't cut out for that kind of sitting in church basement stuff. But one fine day in February of 2004, I saw him, and I was on a minor streak for um, some sobriety. I think I had put together two weeks or something. And so he told me he knew that I wasn't an AA guy, but that it might help me to achieve more reasonable sobriety if I found a guy who had the experience of recovery who might be able to, you know, talk, just kind of tell it like it was, and that that experience might, might benefit me. I have no idea why it stuck that time, but I was, um, I was working then uh, in a building that's just kitty corner across the street from uh, Trinity Church, where Happy Trudgers is located. Um, and when I got out of my car that day, it was about 10 minutes to 12, and I just walked down and walked into that meeting. Um, and that was my first experience with Happy Trudgers. That's a great meeting, and it's cool that uh, when I first walked in there, you were in that room, and you always stayed uh, throughout you know, the years. It feels crazy to say the years now, but uh, you were always there as a constant voice. Um, and I loved your shares. You know, um, I related to a lot of them, and I found them to be from the heart and just with a lot of clarity, I thought. And um, obviously, you got sober before me, or... I guess what I mean to say is it took me a while to really get the message, you know, <laughs> but you were still there hammering away and just showing your experience, strength and hope. Um, and that's appreciated. Uh, so I think then what we can do is go even further back in time and you can tell us how this all began, you know, what it was like, um, what happened and what it's like today. Sounds good. Um well, I've heard some other uh, of your podcasts, uh, excellent ones, including people that I have known personally. And so, um, not to start in prehistory, but uh, my family upbringing was, I think, normal for 1950s and 60s, uh, middle America. I was born and raised in Chicago and uh, lived in the western suburbs of Chicago. I've mentioned uh, that... Uh, well, I haven't mentioned this. I was raised Catholic and became an altar boy in fifth or sixth grade, sometime around then. Um, and that sort of grew on me. Um, I got pretty serious about this question, you know, and it's one that we all have. Why the hell am I alive? Why am I conscious? Why am I here? What's the point of all of this, right? And it's the one that we all ask ourselves in, in different variations, I think, uh, for a lot of years. And then um, most of us, I think, throw our hands up and say, I don't know, I don't know, and I'm not going to worry about it, right? Um, there's people who are faith people who um, have made choices uh, to believe either because of or in spite of um, 
There are people who just don't care, which I think is a majority, at least, of alcoholics. And there are people who say they need to get militant about it. They need to be um, anti-God people or atheists. I was uh, pretty zealous about becoming a priest. And uh, after eighth grade, um, the Chicago seminary system had high school seminaries um, called Quigley Preparatory Seminaries. There was a South and a North. So I went to South um, and um, really had a chance to explore what a spiritual life could be. I had, I had teachers, some lay people, some priests, um, who I really admired. There were good people. And remember, the time period I'm talking about was the late 60s which is a, a time that I know everybody uh, has probably read about, but I don't know how many people are still around who've lived through the turbulent 60s, particularly in Chicago. Um, I was at the police riot in 68, for example, at the Democratic National Convention. But it was a time of turmoil and challenge and change. And so I think what I found in the notion of the priesthood was, number one, a structure, which appealed to me, and number two, a meaningful way to live. You know, this seemed better than floating to me. Uh, I had an older brother and an older sister. Um, they did some of their own floating. They did some of their own goals and education. Um, and I was, I was a person who wanted to have some happiness in my life and some depth to it. I should tell you that um, probably from the time that I was five or six years old, I read where other guys would be out playing ball or horsing around. I did my share of that, but from the time I started reading, that was my love. Um, and I've continued that to today. And so all of that kind of set me up for an internal life. Um, something that I cherish, and uh, like everything alcoholics do, I took it to way far extremes um, and became socially isolated. And, um, you know, that was part and parcel of feeding the alcoholism. Now, the first drink that I had was with a friend who was three or four years older than I. His name was Wayne, and Wayne was the, uh, the western suburban uh, badass type, right? He thought he was pretty hardcore. Uh, I laugh about it now, but he was the first guy who introduced me to a drink. We would sneak behind his father's bar, and he favored browns, so that's the first time I tasted alcohol, really. Uh, besides a sip of beer, it was drinking shots of bourbon. Um, and I liked it, you know? It was fun. I didn't really throw up or get sick from it because I always stopped at one, a lesson I should have learned um, from that point on and didn't. Um, but that was it. We drank some communion wine, of course, before it was consecrated. Um, but that was basically it until, as I say, um, at the end of the high school seminary, two things had happened to me that didn't directly involve alcohol, but were real factors in the future of my drinking. The first was um, I really studied deeply about the history of the Catholic Church and Christian churches in general and other religions, um, and the hypocrisy, uh, the absolute you know, lies historically, the falsification of, of history, um, and all the rest of the evil that churches have done. 
Um, and since I was familiar with the Catholic Church that they had done, really turned me off to the notion of becoming a member of that. That that was a struggle for me because I wanted it and yet I didn't want it. And the second element, of course, were girls. When I started um, meeting girls in a serious way because I was in a an after-school program and there were actually girls in the class because a seminary was all, all boys, um, that was the other factor that made me think maybe being a priest isn't really what I wanted. Um, so I ended up um, I ended up choosing for college Notre Dame because um, it was a foot in each camp, right? And that's where I was really introduced to drinking. Like any school, any college, anywhere, um, there was a heavy element of partying, even beyond the Notre Dame piety. You know, we all know what the sales pitch is, and it's a school like any other. And that's where I started to meet guys who were heavy drinkers. And I had a couple of experiences, but for me, mostly it was dope. And then it was dope and pills. And then it was dope and pills and inhalants and on and on and on. So by the time that I graduated at the end of my junior year, um, I was, if not addicted, I was um, captive to the notion that in order to have a good life, you needed to get high on something pretty much every day. So around this time, Notre Dame, you were probably early 20s? No, I was, uh, yeah, probably from the, by the time I graduated, I think I was 21, yeah. Yeah. Did you ever have like this feeling of conflict in your soul as you started to experiment with like drugs and alcohol? Because you had mentioned how, you know, you were in like a straight and narrow Catholic mm -hmm. type of guy. How, how did that feel back then? Yeah, that, you know, that's a it's a great question for all of us to look at and think about. Um, probably from my mother and father's sides, um, I had developed, without my knowing it, I had developed a really major talent in repressing uh, thoughts and feelings that um, I didn't want to face or confront. And honestly, I did not think that I really had uh, conflict. Uh, and it wasn't until later um, when I was a single dad for a long period of time and needed to go through a child custody struggle uh, and was evaluated by three top professionals, um, they all said one after another on different aspects, Mr. Perzak is, uh, is um, terribly conflicted inside. Um, he has a good academic record and he struggles for happiness using things like meditation. Uh, but he'd do well to do direct therapy. And that really, so I'm talking about 24, 25, that was the first time that I started recognizing that other people saw conflicts that I was just oblivious to. And that was a direct link to alcoholic drinking. How did your alcoholic drinking wrap up then as you were finishing college and going out into the real world? Yeah. Well, I, I came here to Colorado in 73 to go to law school. My scholarship was, uh, was cut, and I went back and home to Chicago and worked uh, in the same factory I'd worked in uh, during summers in, uh, in high school and college and built tractors for a year. 
also went back to Europe. I had been an exchange student for a year, and, and so I went and did some traveling and that kind of stuff. But the alcoholism um, was not subtle, but like all of us, I thought it was very much under control. Didn't really have too many hangovers, and I wasn't drinking in any way the way that it became as, a, as an active alcoholic. You know, I, I was fairly normal. I'd get blitzed, but I had a stop switch, and I would usually drink with other people, and so that was a way to kind of hide the fact that I really wanted more than most people, but I wasn't going to tell anybody about that, especially myself. Did you, when did you get to that point, though, where you started to maybe not have an off switch or you could sense it inside yourself that you wanted more and when did that happen and what was that like for you yeah that was in 74 75 76 um i did du law school in two years and that involved overloading a lot of quarters the dean worked out a deal where if i kept my grades up to a certain level i could graduate in two years because uh, I didn't have any money to go to law school, basically. I had a partial scholarship after I came back, but that was it. Alcohol became my master very quickly at that point in time. What I was doing was I was taking, you know, roughly 24 quarter hours each quarter uh, at DU Law. Um, one, of the, one of the points of the deal that the dean had made with me was that I was not allowed to work. I was supposed to be concentrating just on my studies in law school. But I didn't want to do that, and I needed a job. So I started working for uh, law firms, trial firms, uh, the second semester of my first year in law school. So I was working a full-time job, overloading quarters in law school, and there wasn't much of me left after that, right? I didn't really have much of a social life except volleyball. I filled that gap with booze, and it took no time at all, I think, from the time that I was toward the end of my first, um, my first quarters in law school. It took little time for me to be running back and forth uh, to Argonaut, and uh, buying handles of gin rather than smaller bottles. And, you know, we all know that story. The handles of gin might have lasted for a week or two weeks in the beginning, and it didn't take long at all for them to start taking two or three days for me to get through. I was in trouble with booze, serious trouble, uh, from the time basically that I was in law school and, and then got into the real world of working and stuff. Um, but, you know, I was in my 20s, and it didn't seem to be that abnormal. I didn't talk to anybody about it. Didn't have that many friends I was drinking with, so of course it seemed normal to me. And that's, you know, when it really got bad. That's when it started, anyhow. How? Oh, no, that's what I was going to ask. How long did that, did you stay in that mode? Um, well, let's see. That was... 75, 76, I got sober in 2004. I don't have a math brain, but basically that's the answer. You know, I drank for almost 40 years, yeah, alcoholically for 40 years. Did your family, um, like, did anybody tell you in the family that you got a drinking problem, man? 
No. Um, I was the baby of the family. Like most babies of the family, I got breaks that my brother and sister never got. And I was also away a lot. I mean, I did my sophomore year in college abroad at the University of Innsbruck. I didn't see my parents for a year and a half. When they came through Innsbruck that Christmas, I was real careful about my drinking. So nothing really seemed abnormal. And then when I lived at home again, um, when I came back in 73, 74, I was careful never to drink in the house. I wouldn't even have wine in the house, but I had my car filled with booze. And it was always booze, by the way. It was never beer. It was rarely wine. It was always hard stuff. Yeah. And what got you to the point where you yourself decided, I'm going to get sober? Yeah. That, that's one of, the, one of the best questions I've heard on your podcasts from other people. Unfortunately... I lied to myself so thoroughly and so well, and my job, my career, certainly made that easier for me to dissemble and lie. Um, I was in the persuasion business, right? I was in the business of figuring out if these are the facts, how do I put a bright light on some facts and kind of dim it out on others? And that's exactly what happened to me. I was doing it subconsciously, but I was clearly doing it. Um, choosing that path. So even um, after Mari and I got married um, and um, began having kids, I told you I was a single dad um, with my son in a terrible first marriage. Um, he was my best man when he was five and a half, and Mari and I met and got married that year. Um, it was probably 10 years from that point in time before Mari started saying anything about my drinking. And most of the time, I was a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. I had had some bad experiences with booze. And I was, I think, a little more cautious and tried the same stuff we all tried. I'd have a drink, then I'd have a big glass of water, right? Yeah, that works. Um, you know, I'd put food in my stomach. I'd do all the stuff we did. And... Um, you know, basically, she's always been a person who's gone to bed before me. And so I would finish the job night after night, month after month, year after year, by drinking until I was ready to pass out and then fall into bed and do the whole thing over again the next day. So um, the bottom line was things that should have stopped me 20 years before I got sober. The misery that I was in, always feeling so nauseous that I wanted to puke which I didn't really pay much attention to, but that's the way it was for me, not for a couple of years or a couple of crises, but for decades, it would be morning, real morning sickness, plus standing in the shower with my head throbbing and my stomach, you know, just, just killing me and praying to a God I didn't really believe in, please, please, Help me not drink today. I don't want to drink. I'm not going to drink. I don't want to do this. I don't want to live that way. And then, you know, early on, the first 10, 15 years, I wouldn't drink until it was 6 or 7 o'clock at night. By the time that it was, the gig was up, I was, I was drinking around the clock. I was a maintenance drinker. So, unfortunately, that was late in, in the day. Um, my kids, at the time I first went to treatment, uh, at Harmony, uh, my oldest, well, my son was in his mid to late 20s. My daughter was a teenager. My, my uh, 
middle daughter, and my youngest daughter was six or seven or eight years old. There is one thing that I should probably pop in here. You guys are familiar with the Betty Ford Clinic. Um, I don't know whether they still do it, but Betty Ford used to do a summer outreach program. They'd have teams of their professionals go around to different places in the country, different cities, as I understand it, and it would be a whole family workshop. As I recall, there were maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 families and the way it was set up was there'd be, you know, there'd be people speaking from Betty Ford. Uh, there'd be exercises. And then there'd be this um, pretty remarkable setup uh, at the very end where the alcoholic of the family would go to the front of the room, would sit down on a folding chair, and there would be another folding chair directly opposite the drunk. And family members, one by one, would sit down and talk and either confront the alcoholic disabled person or would cry and scream or would say, I hate you, all of those sorts of things. It was a raw to the bone, stripping you naked deal. I remember sitting there when that exercise started and shrinking into my chair and thinking, I wonder how I get out of this. Um, because I watched and listened to children telling their mother or their father what it was like for them to watch them destroy themselves and just feeling sick again. I mean, I wasn't drinking that, that period, that particular uh, few weeks, um, but boy, was I feeling it. And when, when it was my time for my wife uh, I think my son was there. I don't specifically remember, but I do remember my two daughters sitting there and talking to me with tears in their eyes and telling me what it was like to live with an alcoholic dad. You know, that was one of those times when I thought, I need to get real serious about this. I need to do something to change this. I need to recover from this stuff. And that intention which was pure and which was real serious, lasted about two days before I started drinking again, right? Good intentions do not do it, as we all know. But that's, when, that's about when it became obvious. I think that was 2003 or 2004. Yeah, and it's so hard with kids. Like, you would think that it's something like that. Like, you want it, they want it, they're crying to you, telling you, you know, this is how you're hurting us, and for it to last, you know, but 48 hours or something, and then to go back out just really is a testament to how baffling alcohol can be. And um, so the next, between that incident and 2008 when you got sober, um, what what was your relationship with your girls like? Um, you know, again, that's a great question. I, of course, as the drunk of the bunch, thought things were basically fine. I knew that my older daughter was really mad at me um, and had expressed not just concern, 
Uh, but, you know, she had expressed how she wasn't bringing her friends to the house because they could never tell whether I was going to be, you know, Mr., you know, overly friendly or whether I was going to just be a stumbling drunk. Uh, and, of course, I hadn't realized that. I hadn't noticed. I, I had drinking to do, right? But what what ended up happening was after, you know, years, the whole the whole deal of fits and starts, um, one fine Father's Day. Well, let me back up. I came into um, I came into Happy Trudgers on uh, February second or third of two thousand four for the reasons that I mentioned. Um, that that day when I came in just before noon, there was another guy who was standing uh, near the front door when I walked into Trudgers. And, of course, the meetings are in the church basement like every other church basement in the world. Um, and he was just kind of standing, looking around, and seemed to be lost. And so we started talking, and he told me his name was Pete and that he was an alcoholic and he was looking for AA. I told him my name was Greg, and I was looking for AA. I did not say, I'm Greg, I'm an alcoholic. I just said, I'm Greg. thought I'd just kind of check, check this out. So Pete and I go down, and I had my first experience with sitting and listening to real people telling honest stories about themselves. I remember firmly shutting my mouth, and if I said anything in those first five meetings, it was probably, hi, Hawaii, busy guy. Um, and yeah, sometimes I drink too much. Um, Pete, God bless Pete, um, had been sober for, oh, I think 15 years or so uh, at that point in time. He was also a very dedicated Christian guy. And there was something about my game that Pete recognized because he pretty much physically took me under his wing from day one and said, you don't know anything about sponsorship, but let me tell you what my experience was. And so I ended up just kind of sliding into Pete as my sponsor, even though I was reluctant to be an AA, because I remembered what the doctor had told me, right? You need to find somebody, doesn't matter whether they're an AA or not, you need to find somebody who's been there. And you might find, you know, some good clues on how you can moderate your drinking or stop it. Well, Pete was, he was a cunning sponsor. He was probably 40, and I was probably 50-some. Um, and Pete was a guy, um, haven't seen him in a number of years. I'll explain that in a second. Uh, but he was, he was the guy who saved my life, the first guy who saved my life. I was in this guy's pocket every day sometimes three or four times a day, phone calls, trudgers, meetings at his house, or working the book and working the steps uh, by ourselves, but also he ran groups of his own, and there would be four or five or six guys, and we'd all read the book together. The difference for me was I was enthusiastic, and I was terrified, and I knew I needed to stop, but largely we'd be on step two, and I'd start sneaking drinks. We'd be on step three, and I'd say the words, I'd get on my knees, I'd hold hands with him, and, you know, beg God through the third step prayer, you know, to let me turn this stuff over, and then we'd get up from the meeting, he'd go back to work, I'd go to Scooter Liquors, which was a drive-through on Colfax, and pick up my handle, 
and, you know, off to the races again. And then the next day it would be, you know, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine, Pete. On and on and on and on and on like that. Hmm. So how did things start to turn around finally for you? What happened was this. Father's Day of 2004, I'd been working with Pete by that time for five, coming up on six months. It was Father's Day. Mari had planned um, that we were going to have, you know, some sort of a family dinner and the kids would be coming and that sort of thing. And she found me a little before 7 a.m. wandering around in our bedroom closet. I was pawing through um, I was pawing through my sport coat and suit coats because I knew that I had put a fifth of either gin or vodka. I switched from gin ultimately because it started to make me sick. So like all good alcoholics, I went to vodka, including orange vodka, right? We all know that one. Um, but anyhow, I was having trouble remembering whether it was the brown sport coat or the gray suit coat. And in the middle of my just trying to calmly by myself, not bothering anybody, figure it out. She walked in at the time that I'd finally found it and was pulling the bottle out. So, absolutely. That's the way it works. So, Mari calls Pete. Pete comes up and says, I really don't want to hear it. I've heard your stories again and again and all your excuses. You need to go, you need to go to treatment. You need to go now. And Mari was looking daggers and was crying, and I realized if I wanted any chance of keeping this marriage, I better shut my mouth and go to treatment, right? Now, we had made no prior arrangements at all, and I didn't know where treatment was. But Pete knew about Harmony House. Um, on um, It's in um, Estes Park. Um, I forget the road, uh, Fishkill Road, I think. But anyhow, off we went. And because by that point in time, my wife had been rude enough to me that she didn't let me drink from the bottle that I had finally found after all this hard work, and Pete didn't seem inclined to say, why don't you just finish that? So we get in the car with Pete and his wife, and we drive, I don't know, several miles, and I start to shake, and I start to really go into withdrawal. So he pulls over, finds a liquor store. Uh, we go in together, and he bought me a fifth, uh, a fifth of vodka. And that's the way that I arrived at Harmony House. Uh, hour and a half or so drive up there, and I sat in the back seat, and the more that I pulled on that bottle, the more normal I became, the happier I became, and we got there, and I was fine with the world, right? That seemed okay, and when people, you know, who were doing intake said, are you willing to be here for 28 days, and uh, here's the list of rules, including I see your cell phone, and I see, you know, the kind of guy you seem to be, you think you're pretty busy and pretty important, uh, we have no cell phones here. We have one phone, and you don't have any privileges to use it until you're here for, I think it was two weeks, didn't matter. So that all sounded well, I was still pretty good in terms of my blood alcohol, said goodbye to Pete and his wife, sat there happily, and then by six o'clock at night, I was in agony. I mean, I was withdrawn like crazy. And so they started giving me Librium, which is probably still the drug of choice, I think, a benzodiazepine that doesn't really have very heavy effects. And I needed those benzos like I like I needed opiates when I was doing opiates, you know, right? And I was able to finally break that with the help of the doctor. But 
those were just diversions from the booze. The Librium helped me sleep and helped me kind of white-knuckle my way until after four or five days I was able to actually draw breath, not just from the nipples up, but I was able to breathe all the way from the navel on up and exhale. It took me four or five days. Interestingly enough, in the group that was there for, you know, my group for that 28 days, there was a woman who was a nurse, and she was a, I think she was a nurse practitioner, and she was so bent out of shape on both booze and narcotics. She was catatonic for two weeks. She could not speak. She would come to all the meetings, but she would sit there and stare like a person whose brain is gone. And it was only after a couple of weeks that she began to be able to be verbal. And that made an impression on me too. By the time we graduated from that program, at the end of 28 days, two things had happened to me. Number one, we had had the usual family day after about three weeks. Mari and the kids came up. Um, my son was there with his family. And we just sat there. And I was brutally honest with them for the first time. I told them stories I had never told. I told them how totally trashed my life was and that I would do anything to stay sober. And so that was the first thing. The second thing was the day of discharge. One of the guys who had been one of the instructors, I suppose, came and uh, gave the exit speech and said uh, almost exactly these words, I'm sorry to tell you, but by the time you are out of here for a week, 50% of you will be drinking again. And I tell you guys, I was so sad for the rest of my peers, my friends, because I just couldn't imagine going back to drinking and I couldn't imagine that they would do that, but it wasn't going to be me. And of course, two days after I got out of, out of Harmony House, there was a liquor store my car at the time just drove me. It was before there was automatic driving, but I had a car that somehow automatically drove to parking lots with liquor stores, and that's what happened to me. And I was back while I was supposed to be doing outpatient therapy. I was back to buying bottles, sneaking them, hiding them here, hiding them in the car, hiding them in the office. And I was as miserable as I'd ever been because I thought, look, if you go to if you go to treatment, and by that time I had heard others at, at um, Happy Trudgers, like Brian, a friend of ours, who you know well, Alfredo, Brian had been to either eight or nine treatment facilities. To this day, he doesn't remember how many there were. I heard from him about three weeks ago. Um, and I thought, that is totally insane. There's no way I could do that or live that way. I have to stop drinking. I have to get this right. And I redoubled my efforts. And for a while, I was able to stay sober. But I kept relapsing. And so the first time I drew a true sober breath was in... It was in um, February of 2005 right after Groundhog Day. Uh, and I don't want to just tell endless stories, but I think it's probably okay for me to tell this one. Mm -hmm. um, Mari and I had a deal. If I ever drank again, uh, and it became obvious, or I wouldn't be honest about it, I needed to move out of the house away from her and the kids for three months. 
and I needed to do whatever recovery I needed to do. If I came back to the house and was otherwise not drinking and then drank again, I had to move out for six months and it would be divorce time, right? And so what happened at that point in time was um, I had, I had um, gotten sober in 2005 and I basically, I basically um, was sober for periods and times, and I had colored chips in addition to huge stacks of desire chips, right, and 30-day chips. I had colored chips, and I had finally come close to a year, as I recall. But I went on a bender when I was out of the house. Uh, and it was an awful bender. I had been drinking worse and worse in and around the office. I was on a contract with my partners at the time. Uh, I was supposed to be doing random UAs three times a week. Um, and I was compliant with that until I wasn't. And in a panic, by, that, by those days, the internet was up and running. Everything was available, obviously. And so I was online one day, and I found this marvelous device called the Wizenator. I think you've heard me talk about the Wizenator. Yeah. Okay. The Wizenator uh, was, may still be there for those of you who are looking for it. Um, the Wizenator is a uh, device with a pouch, and uh, the pouch is uh, initially filled with, and you can buy replacement pouches for it with artificial urine uh, that is guaranteed, quote unquote, to be sterile urine, right? And the point of it is you wear it. Uh, in your groin so that it heats to normal body temperature on any day that you think you might be tested. Then you have to practice with the outlet uh, hose, and there's a little nipple on the end of it, and you have to be suave enough to be able to hold, as a male, hold yourself, hide the little tip so that it looks like you're peeing into the cup, and then close the little thing with your thumb while shaking yourself and all of it. Well, the place that I was going to, the guy who ran it um, had some legal problems. And so after the first week where he was in the room with me peeing, and I was talking up a storm with him and helping him with his, some of his legal questions and issues, we became pals, and he decided, hey, he was a busy guy. He didn't need to come into the room with me anymore. So that was that, right? When I, when I was going to drink, I wouldn't worry about it anymore. I'd just have my Wizenator urine. Well, like it always does, that led to me un, uncontrollable drinking again. And one fine bender day, I'd been drinking for about a week and was out of control and uh, didn't go into work one, one Friday afternoon. And uh, I was sitting there at about 2 o'clock, 2.30 in the afternoon, blitzed out of my mind and I hear my car um, my car horn go off with the beep that means somebody's either bumped it or something's happened somebody's leaned against the car so I literally look out the window and there's my car somebody had apparently pulled out and had bumped the bumper and so it took me forever to find my car keys but I walked downstairs from this rat hole apartment I was living in not too far from the office uh, get in the car, open the car door, get in the car, put the key in the ignition, and stopped the alarm from bleeding. Right when I had done this, there's a knock on the window of the driver's side door. And I look out, and there's a guy standing there. 
dressed in plain clothes, regular clothes. I rolled the window down, and he said something like, Sir, are you all right? And I'm sure I said something articulate like, Why wouldn't I be all right? I feel fine. Okay, well, anyhow, he told me that he had seen me fumbling with my keys trying to get in the door and then informed me that he was an off-duty Colorado State Patrol officer who had been testifying at the Capitol, which was a half block away from this apartment I was living in. And drunk as I was, I was able to think, here I am sitting behind the wheel of my car and the keys are in the ignition. Given the work that I did for a living, I knew well that was DUI, right? You just can't be doing that. And it wouldn't cure it to just kind of take the keys out and drop them and say, I'm just going to get out of the car now. So this guy, who was, I think, a really well-intentioned guy, was just trying to get me out and be safe. And uh, for all those reasons we know is our alcoholic choices when we're in our cups. I started the engine and was waving him off because he was he, he was standing next to the window and I think he had his hand you know on the on the side of the window and was talking to me and saying sir don't do that you need to just get out of the car and we can talk about this and I put it in gear and kept saying sir sir please let go and so I start driving off at about one mile an hour two miles an hour three miles an hour while this officer is starting now from walking to jogging, holding on and saying, sir, you need to pull over now. Well, I finally let go. And I thought, Whew. So then I look in the rearview mirror as I'm coming to the intersection to make a right turn on 16th, and he's writing something down. And I don't remember whether he had a phone or not, but I knew he had my license. I kept driving for, I don't know, an hour or two and ended up on 6th Avenue stopping at a liquor store I'd never seen before on Sheridan and 6th Avenue. Unbeknownst to me, the um, officer quite properly had put out a bolo for the entire city of Denver, be on the lookout for. And so two cops, uh, Westminster police officers, showed up here at the house Mari and my youngest daughter were here, and they opened the door, and there's two police officers asking for Greg and saying, we're here to arrest him. He's, he's going to be charged with DUI. Is he here? And you can imagine how that felt to my wife and child. In the meantime, I'm just driving, being afraid to come back to my apartment because I figure there's probably cops waiting for me then. I didn't have a plan. And, of course, what happened was I was in the right lane and I was probably driving 30 and everybody else was driving 60 or 70. And a cop car pulled off, pulled uh, behind me, stopped me, and I was so wasted I could not get out of that car. They had to literally lift me and pour me out of the car. That's how bad it was. And so that was my first experience with jail. Um, shall I continue or? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, you know, I was processed and booked. I told them they didn't need to do a breathalyzer, that I'd give them bloods. Um, don't know why I did that except someplace in the recesses of my brain. I thought, well, I'm going to have to hire a lawyer to defend me. Uh, and I sort of remembered there could be tainted blood or problems with processing blood. So maybe that was my easy way out of it. Anyhow, um, they took me to Denver Cares. I was not in the jail more than a couple of hours. During that point in time, they brought in a woman um, 
short-statured woman. Um, she was both drunk and manic, and she was on the floor the entire time. She just collapsed to the floor and was holding herself and crying and wailing and that kind of stuff. And we started a conversation. And my side of the conversation was, I'm, an, I'm a chronic alcoholic. I can't stop in spite of everything. AA isn't working for me. I'm still drinking. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm going to die of it. And that was the thing that got her off the floor. She said to me, don't say that to yourself. You're not a bad person. You're not an alcoholic. You just have problems like I have problems. And it was like I was split in two at that point in time. I remember looking at her and the shape she was in, feeling the shape I was in, and thinking, that's me. She is me. I've told myself that same BS for over 30 years. And then they came to take me away. And I didn't know whether I was going to prison or to court or whatever. Well, they took me to Denver Cares. At that time, I'd been going to Denver Cares in my work suits every, uh, every other week with Bob H. I don't know whether you remember Bob H., uh, kind of gray-haired guy, a lawyer, very smooth-talking, was sort of a regular there. Um, but uh, Bob and I, Bob uh, was the guy who had invited me to come and do 12-step work at Denver Cares. And I'd been doing it with him for probably close to a year. So this was my first experience to be not on that side of the table, bringing the truth of sobriety to all these poor unfortunates. But I was the one who was sitting in the other suit, sort of the, the jail suit um, on the other side of the table. And boy, it was interesting to see the expression on Bob's face when he showed up that night with somebody else. And so that's when, that's when things began to change for me. Um, I was awake that whole night. There were probably 100 guys in there. And uh, I don't know whether you guys have had the experience, but you stay in a Denver Cares type facility until you blow zeros. All night long, I looked at the ceiling. I'm sure I prayed. I don't remember anything. If it was prayer, it was inarticulate, like, I give up. I can't do this. I can't do it. I can't live this way anymore. I'm sure I said, God help me or something to that extent a hundred times, but I've been saying it for decades. And so I was the last guy out of Denver Cares. Everybody else had blown zeros and moved out. And the woman who was basically administering the blow tests and sitting by the door was as pissed at me as I've ever seen anybody. It was like two hours after everybody had left. She was stuck there with me because I was still blowing numbers. So anyhow, I finally blew zeros. Finally blew zeros. And she gave me the dirtiest look and said some unkind things to me. I got my remaining stuff and walked out the door. This was about 11.15 that day. And um, that's when my life changed. I walked out of Denver Cares. And from the time that I actually stepped out the door and took like two or three steps, everything in the world was different. Something had happened. And the best way I can describe it is when I opened my eyes, I had been squinting against the sun, obviously. Well, when I opened my eyes, the sky had become 
the bluest blue that I'd ever seen. The grass was just importantly green. It was vibrant green. I felt, I felt a lightness go through me. And I haven't mentioned this, but I'd been meditating for over 25 years. <laughs> Pardon me. Took it very seriously. And meditation was helping on the times that I was not drinking. And so I was just paralyzed. I was probably not in that state for more than, I don't know, 30 seconds. It felt like an hour. I mean, I was just in some sort of state I can't describe. I could say it was bliss, <clears throat> and that's the way it felt. But when things returned to normal, to my perception, for the first time in my life, I knew I never had to drink again. I'd never felt that way. I knew immediately what had happened. Immediately, because I knew the big book pretty much by heart and the 12 and 12 and the rest of the literature in the program. I knew that what had happened was that something had changed in me and that I did not have a desire to drink. And so what I did was because of the time and once I had absorbed sort of what had happened, I went directly to Happy Treasures, pardon me, for that noon meeting and told my story for the first time, that part of the story, not the rest of it. But that's, um, that's the way it went. And that was, uh, that was my first taste of sobriety. Stop now. So what keeps you going to meetings today? After years of sobriety now? Yeah, I, I should have 18 and a half years of sobriety instead of 15 because I drank again. It was one evening, one Friday evening, right at the time I had just had my three-year chip. I had wonderful sobriety for a while, but then started to get shaky, and I'm sure I probably was picking up at that point. I think my wife has told me that she was she was sure that I was. But the bottom line was I drank on a Friday night. Um, first thing I did the next morning was call my physician. Doc said to me, look, don't drink again. I know your story from three years ago. Just come into the hospital and let us medically detox you for the rest of the weekend, which I did. Um, and so um, that was my second sobriety on the one that I have till this day. It was July 21st, 2008, and I've been sober since. Going back to meetings has been a gradual change. Like all of us, for those first hard years, up to and including what I've just told you about, I was trying to help other people. I was actually sponsoring other people after I'd had my first year but, you know, it was still basically I was going to meetings because I needed to go to meetings. It was about me. 
It wasn't so much about other people, although I was trying. My heart was in it, but I wasn't solid in the program. And all of this, especially when I drank for a second time, by the time I came back that Monday and had something else change, um, I was coming to meetings because I knew I could live a sober life, but I needed to do every step of the program. I needed to do it always, and I needed to do it all the time. I'm not a guy who has done the steps once through or twice through with a sponsor. With sponsors, I've probably done the steps seven or eight times. With my sponsees, I work the steps every time that I work with a sponsee. I don't make a production out of it. Some people I mention, some people I don't tell, but I go back and I work the steps. And I do that for a complicated set of reasons. One is obviously, as Dr. Bob says, to take out insurance against a future slip. But that's not what motivates me to do it. It's that I know to the depth of my soul that the program works, that working the steps not only can get me and everyone else in this program sober, and it can break down the barriers in us that keep us from being in, in staying sober, but it also opens the door to a happy life like I had never experienced before. And because I can have that happy life, I've got a, I've got a sense that it's my absolute obligation to be there day after day, week and month and year after year, to be there for somebody else who walks in and says, I can't stop, right? And so it's not about the motives. It's about that's the way I need to live because that's what the program is truly all about. And with that, all the conflicts that I used to have and maintain myself, they're gone. I'm, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm there to try to help other people. I think you have such an incredible story, and the way that you're able to articulate it is just amazing. Um, I have so many questions for you. Okay, first, when did the obsession to drink finally leave you? It finally left me um, that weekend um, that I was in the hospital in 2008, my current sobriety date. It just was gone, and I've never had a craving since. Wow, that's amazing. Um, and then, so in the beginning, we talked a lot about like your religious background and then how that idea of God changed over time. So what, what is your idea of God or your higher power? What does that look like today? Yeah, thanks, Kayla. That's a great question. I'm no different from anybody else. Um, I've heard a lot of people talk about their relationships with a higher power or God, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I've said the same thing that many people have said, which is they don't know or I don't know what I believe in, but I believe in something. I think what's different or a little different anyhow for me is I don't have a higher power who's out there. I don't have a, an experience or a faith in um, some sort of story God, be it the Bible, be it the Gita, uh, be it any of the Norse mythologies. I, I, don't have, I don't have that in my mind. What I respond to the most 
is what several of the other books that are approved literature but aren't part of the program of AA, you know, refer to as a God-sized hole. When I first learned about that, and then subsequently when I finally became sober for real, the notion of a God-sized hole is the best description I have for what it felt like for me to be a hopeless alcoholic. That emptiness that cannot be filled, that emptiness that can't be helped by other people, that emptiness that for my relapsing would get a little filled up when I was working with other people, sponsors or sponsees, and especially being in meetings and listening to your stories. But there was always something missing, and it was the experience that I've described that I had when I came out of Denver Cares that sort of, there's no, there's no more space anymore to be filled up with longing or with questions. I know that I have a higher power, but it's not out there. It's in here, and my job is to not just maintain whatever this is, but to try to reflect and share the reality that that is inside all of us. And we alcoholics, however we term it or whatever name we get to it, that's what animates us. That's what keeps our breath moving. That's what keeps us being able to live each day through terrible pain and sadness to real happiness. It's filling that hole. And that's what my concept of God or a higher power is. Does that answer the question? Oh, for sure. And to kind of, uh, I guess, piggyback off of that or in the way that I see it dovetail right into that, in the beginning you were talking about how everybody has this innate um I guess, like, almost quest to find out what it means to live a good life. Like, what does that mean now? You have 15 years of sobriety. You have a good amount of wisdom. You know, you've worked with others. You're able to look back and, you know, reflect. Like, what is, what is your definition of living a good life now? Also a fair question. What, what you really are asking me is what it's, what it's like to be old. <laughs> Um, I am north of 70, <laughs> okay. right? So if, well, I was looking for other words. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, hopefully, whether we're in the program or out of the program, hopefully going through life and life's troubles, and um, for us, getting sober, hopefully that brings some perspective and wisdom. But definitely, definitely feeling the power of the program and then living that um, is what I think of as the path to a good life. The way that I can best explain that for me to you guys um, is uh, comparing and contrasting. So my job was to be an uber-responsible, an ultra-responsible trial lawyer. And I thrived in that. I, I dove into that, and I mostly loved that job, especially the combat part of it, right? I became a lawyer in order to be a trial lawyer, and I was exhilarated by that. And of course, during the years that I was drinking, it was all about my ego and pride. But since that has... It's like letting the air out of the balloon. Since the ego has not become the major overriding issue. I'm not saying that I don't have an ego, but I really value humility and right-sizedness. Alfredo has heard me talk about this. You know, being right-sized for me means to get to the point 
of being humble enough to recognize that we're not just saying words in the rooms or in the literature, that we are not the center of the universe, that I am a very small part in a very big world, in a very big universe, but that there is a spark inside me that is divine and that there is ways for us to feel and appreciate and experience that divinity that's inside of us. And the key to experiencing that, although I've mentioned meditation is pretty much my gateway, but the key to that is just to let go. Today at Trudger's, topic of the meeting was letting go and letting God, right? And person after person at the meeting told their story of what it means to just let go. Just say, I don't control this. I don't need to get warped and worried over this. It's not my problem, whether it's in me or in somebody else, or Lauren Boebert um, being escorted out of the Denver Center Theater last week. Um, it's not mine to either judge or to be upset about because it's out of my control. And to say it is one thing, to live it and to actually relax and laugh and say, I get it. I got to just give this up because it's taken up room in my head and it's you know, it's just like drinking only dry, right? And so being in that space is what I think kind of allows all of us to go forward and, and to feel that and to experience that sort of life. Does that answer the question? Yes, yes. No, I could, I could sit in your beautiful home with you all day long and just pick your brain. I love hearing what you've had to say today. Well, thank you. really Tara. amazing. Thank you. For uh, Just for our listeners to clarify, because um, not everybody is from the Colorado or Denver area, Denver Cares, that's a detox center? It's a, it's a um, short-term detox center. It's uh, down either on Acoma or Bannock. It's not too far from the Denver jail, which is on, you know, 13th and 14th and Bannock. You could give yourself a piece of advice, a younger Greg back in the day. What would that be? Hmm. The guy who really needs it. Yeah. I'd love to come up with a, a simple, a simple saying, but alcoholism is a complicated disease because we're complicated people. Recovery is not easy. A lot of people say that going through the steps, getting sober is the hardest thing they've ever done. Not my experience at all. My experience is living drunk year after year is the hardest thing I ever did. So what I would say to other, other people who have got my problem and my disease to my younger self would have to have several factors. The first is a deep version of get over yourself. Get over yourself. Whatever that takes, you got to stop thinking you're the hottest thing on wheels or that you control your life or that, you know, I can do this by myself. People have said this for, for many, many years in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you had cancer, would you look in the mirror and say, oh, I can handle this myself? No. But what does every alcoholic do over and over and over again? I can handle this. So the first thing I'd say to younger Greg is, you got to get over your own image of yourself and honestly say, 
I am helpless in the face of booze or whatever my addiction or compound addiction is. I am addicted and I can't fix it by myself. So that's number one. And the first step toward that is getting over yourself. Second thing I'd say is, of course, you think you're the hottest thing on wheels. You got a decent job. You're young. You think you're attractive to the other sex or to your own sex or to both. (laughs) You think that threesomes were made for you. (laughs) And, um, you know, you, you just think that you've got the world by the tail. To cure some of that, take some time out of your own busy life, which is all about you. Go to hospitals. Go to children's hospitals. Watch kids with cystic fibrosis. Help cancer patients struggle to live. And then get the idea in your head, not only are you not the center of the universe, you don't have the power to save yourself from your own life and your own stupidity, or to be able to change the outcomes for anybody in this life. So step two is... If you can't tell yourself you need help, then go out and try to give help to other people. I don't care what your job, your age, or your self-importance is. Become the equivalent of a candy striper and do it for once a month. But do that because that's the only way I've found to be able to convince yourself I'm not the center of the universe, and guess what? I don't have control over these people and their problems. I probably don't have control over my own. And number three is if you got a drinking problem, and by that I mean if you go out drinking regularly and enjoy more than the next person or your friends, or in my case and in most of the alcoholics I know, If you go out and you'll be in a bar, you go to dinner and you have a couple of glasses of wine, but before you get there, you got to have the warm-up drinks before you leave. And afterwards, you come home and you have to have a few to get to sleep, to finish the job, to really feel happy and loose. you got a problem that you can't solve. So open your head up to the, the possibility that you may be in deeper than you think. It's not just the movies. It's not just series on TVs. If you got a drinking problem, it will eat you alive. It will take everything you have. And when I say it, it's not the booze in the bottle. It's our own stupid bent thinking. We're addicts. And get that through your head. Addicts need help. And if you can do those three things, you got a fighting chance to actually catch yourself on a higher floor of the elevator than having to go to the sub-basement, right? Greg, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the last hour. We really, what a story. Very powerful. And I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank yes, you. Yes, you're just a plethora of knowledge. <laughs> Thank you guys for coming. Alfredo, do you want to tell our friends where they can find us at? Yeah, sure. Uh, we are found at recoveryedgepodcast.com. You can leave us a comment there as well. Um, follow our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our YouTube channel. Uh, links will be in the show notes. So thank you very much. We'll see and you next time. give us a like and a follow. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.